The views and opinions expressed on this program are not subject to the approval of the NBC, the CBC, the BBC, the National Football League, the University of Southeastern North Carolina at Westchester, nor any of the media outlets, academic institutions, or religious organizations whose purpose is to mold our thoughts, opinions, and lifestyles into that which is deemed acceptable by the gatekeepers of polite society. Dear listener, proceed with caution. My name is James Newcomb, and I love stories. Stories make you happy, they make you sad, they make you angry, they make you glad. But most importantly, they make you think. That's what this show is all about. It's called Newcombio, and it begins now. This episode hits close to home for me because this is something that I actually experienced uh, firsthand, I was employed by the military as a musician, and uh, I reached a point in my life, or a point in my um, convictions, where I just could not reconcile my own involvement with the military in any form with my own uh, beliefs. And I applied to be discharged from the military as a conscientious objector. Just to take all the drama out of it, it was uh, uh, under, I guess, a more of a uh, generalized or, uh, or, or uh, kind of an administrative type of exit from the military. But I, I can firmly say that I did leave the military as a conscientious objector. Now, the conscientious objector is a term that maybe people have heard of. It was uh, more well-known during the Vietnam War when you had the draft and people, you know, people w tried to avoid the draft by using the terms conscientious objector. And uh, it's, not, it's not nearly as prominent today with the voluntary military, but it is a thing. And there are rules and regulations that govern how someone can be discharged from, a, from the military as a conscientious objector. And so I wanted to bring onto the program today someone who was very instrumental and very helpful to me with my own journey, going through the process of being, of going through the, the, the steps of being discharged as a conscientious objector. His name is Bill Galvin. He works for the Center on Conscience and War, which we can find at centeronconscience.org. Well, Bill, why don't we just start out with a working definition of what exactly is a conscientious objector? Sure. Well, I mean, generally speaking, a conscientious objector, objector is someone who says, because of my conscience, I can't do this. I, I can't be a part of war or I can't be a part of this war. Now, the, um, there is a legal definition under U.S. law, and that is that a conscientious objection, objector is someone who is opposed to their participation in war, um, war in any form, uh, based on their ethical, moral, or religious beliefs. What exactly do you mean by national law? Is it a military regulation, or how would you describe that? Well, the, the, the place it is spelled out in U.S. law is in the draft law. Um, you know, but, and so that is actually a law that's still in effect, even though nobody's still being, currently being drafted. Um, but then in the early 60s, uh, the Pentagon uh, developed a DOD policy that was based on the draft law. It seems to me that in the modern era, a conscientious objector or someone who's trying to uh, seek discharge from the military under that designation, they could, you know, you could just 
come right back at them and say, well, you know what, you voluntarily joined the military and you signed the contract and we're going to hold you to your word. So what exactly do you do in cases like this? How do you counsel people like that? And, and actually, that is part of the requirement is you have to show how your beliefs changed, because obviously, if you believed this, you wouldn't have joined the military. Crystallization is the term they use, I believe. Yeah, and, and this happened, we get people, you know, talk about this all the time, as if you're somehow, well, you signed a contract, and, you know, you should honor your contract. And, of course, one of the things we have to point out to folks is, you know, the contract, you know, you're also agreeing to abide by military regulations, policies, and procedures. And there are military regulations that say if you develop these beliefs, that's grounds for discharge. And that's something that I told myself when I was going through this process years and years ago, is that uh, on the one hand, I was conflicted about uh, this this conflict in my mind about, you know, unable to reconcile my own personal beliefs with my role as a soldier in the U.S. Army. And on the other hand, I had this, you know, this this conviction that I need to honor my word and that I signed a contract. And um, but that was my way of kind of reconciling with that was, you know, there is a procedure for doing this. And James, you're doing you're doing it by the book. So I I guess I was able to find a little bit of comfort in that. But uh, another question I have for you is, what is your success rate? Uh, you personally, the the Center on Conscience. What is your success rate with people that you work with? Well, I, nobody knows for sure because the Pentagon controls those statistics, and you know, and they haven't publicly released them since uh, '07. So that's been more than a decade ago. And at that point, what they claimed, and again, they control all the numbers, uh, they claimed that there was a slightly more than 50% approval rate. Uh, now, in our experience, based on the conscientious objectors that we work with, and we think based on their numbers back in 07, we probably worked with most of the folks they dealt with, um, it, but in, in more than the folks they've reported on, actually. Um, you know, in our experience, we have a very high success rate, like over 90%. I mean, we don't generally lose too many conscientious objector applications. I mean, we, we work with folks really hard to help them, you know, make sure they put together a good application and we stick with them through the process. And I'd say more often than not, you know, because it's a long process and, you know, and there's a lot of stuff that happens along the way. I mean, people might give up, you know, or, or, you know, or do something else like go AWOL as a way of getting out, um, you know, but for those that stick through, stick with the process, um, you know, we have a very high success rate. You know, I'd be interested in hearing some of the stories of some of the circumstances by which people have had their beliefs as conscientious objectors crystallize over the years. Uh me, from my own experience, I joined the military with, you know, some reservations about foreign policy and the military involvement, but that was just me. And, uh, you know, over time, my beliefs crystallized into what they were, which I believe was a legit conscientious, conscientious objector. But of course, everyone is different. So um, can you maybe share some stories of some of the circumstances or some of the ways that some people that you've worked with have had their beliefs as a conscientious objector crystallized to the point where they want to seek discharge with that designation. Sure. Well, I mean, there's, okay, people's experiences are really varied. Okay. I, I got to start by saying that. And, 
you know, and for, and for some folks, it's something as simple as a religious religious conversion. They become Mennonite or Jehovah's Witness, and and you know, their religion says you can't be in the military. Um, you know, but but for most folks, it's it's something in their experience, and and yeah, a lot of folks were you know recruited by a you know heavy-handed recruiter who may have may not have been totally honest about what they were getting into and so for for some folks it's uh getting there and coming to realize what it is they've really gotten themselves into uh, i think very few people joining the military really know what they're getting into until they get there and you know and and so for so for people who you know call us when they're in training i mean among the things i've heard about is like well I was willing to fight to defend my country, but in training, they're trying to get me excited about killing people, and they're trying to get me excited about killing babies, and this just doesn't strike me as right, okay? I mean, they, they, they you know, and that's really what, you know, pricks their conscience and gets them thinking about what they're really a part of. Um, you know, so, so, so for some people, it does happen in the training stage. Uh, for other folks, it happens, you know, later on. Obviously, uh, on the battlefield, you know, uh, you know, there was one one of our folks we worked with. Um, you know, he was uh, in Iraq. There was a demonstration going on because the part of the training, you know, in in the army is they they train you to to shoot reflexively. You know, to to basically part of the training is to override your conscience, so you'll do, you know, on reflex or or order what they want you to do. And he said there was a there was a demonstration going on. Um, there was a guy that emerged. He he had something in his hand. It might have been a grenade. Uh, he was way too far from us. There's no way he could have injured us. He says I don't remember anything except um, he was there in a pool of blood, and somebody emerged from the crowd and dragged him back into the crowd. He says later, when I was alone. And I pulled out my, you know, my magazine and my, my rifle, and I counted my bullets. I had shot 11 times, and I didn't remember shooting at all. And that's when he said, no, I can't do this, you know. Um, you know, and for some people, you know, it's getting their, you know, you know either, it's, well, something like what he said, you know, killing somebody gets you thinking about it, or, or seeing somebody get killed. Maybe your best friend right next to you gets shot. And you think about it more differently. So, so for people, you know, who are you know in combat, there's all sorts of things, you know, that that may happen. You know, that 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 pricks their conscience. Um, you know, but but there's other things too. For example, um, um, one of the people we worked with was uh, she was a translator. Her she was a Chinese interpreter. What her job was was to listen. She was stationed in Japan. She would listen to, um, you know, things intercepted from China in hopes that there would be something there that would be useful to U.S. military intelligence. And one time when she was on a break, or like a weekend off or whatever, uh, she visited the memorial site at Hiroshima. And it just shook her to her core. And she realized, this is what I'm a part of. I I can't really do this, you know. Um... Wow, I mean, there, you know, there, there, there's all sorts of. There was actually one guy. This is a long time ago, but there was one guy I worked with. This was back during the Cold War. He was, he was in a, he was in a, um, a submarine, and he said that 
you know, we're floating around the ocean there like we do, and we had a chance encounter with a Soviet sub. And they actually did a cat and mouse game where they actually shot at each other. And, you know, and eventually the whole thing ended when his sub outran the Soviet sub and got away. But but reflecting on that, he thought, we could have just started World War III. And, you know, so that was what did it for him. Uh, so, you know, each person you know, has their own story about why, you know, something suddenly became, you know, unacceptable to them. One of the more famous conscientious objectors in history is Desmond Doss. And if I remember the story correctly, he was drafted into the military during World War II, and he had some religious convictions about uh, fighting or combat or holding a weapon, something like that. I don't remember exactly, but he was able to still participate in the war effort. He ended up receiving the Medal of Honor. And so, you know, that's that's a good story in its own right, and we should celebrate that. But um, it, it's a little different from what you just described with these people who have voluntarily joined the military and then had this crisis of conscience. So how would you di- uh, make the distinction between uh, like a, someone like Desmond Doss and the people that you just described? Okay, well, okay, let me just back up a little and say um, U.S. law recognizes two kinds of conscientious objectors. Um, one is someone who objects to participation. Well, you have to participate in war in any form. You do have to say that. But, um, but you know, for some, any involvement in the military, they view as participating in war and they're seeking discharge. But there are other people who draw the line at killing people. And they say, you know, I could, sir. I'm opposed to war, but if I'm not personally involved in combat, I, you know, I could, you know, serve in the military. And and so those folks uh, then get classified as non-combatants, and they can never be legally required to carry a weapon or use a weapon or be trained in the use of weapons, but otherwise they are full and regular members of the military. Now, most of the people that we encounter want to, are seeking discharge, but there are some you know, who, who, you know, they feel, well, I made a commitment to the government when I joined. I want to fulfill that. I just don't want to be killing people. And so they apply for this other status. And, you know, and, we, and usually when folks are thinking about that, we talk with them so they understand, you know, what that could mean. Because, as you pointed out, Desmond Doss, he was right on the front lines. I mean, he was not carrying a weapon. Um, you know, he was a medic. Um, but he was certainly right in the middle of combat. Um, but, but that was his way of... Uh, you know, living out, um, you know, his beliefs. So Desmond Doss maybe approved of the war but wasn't able to participate in combat. Can you explain that? I'm not even sure he approved of the war as much as he was drafted. And given his religious beliefs, he said, I can't be a part of war, but I will serve my country. As I recall, I came to you guys, the Center for Conscience on War, uh, a long time after I had actually put in the, the, the actual paperwork for my uh, to be discharged from the military. And after talking with you, Bill, and, and you're the people there at the center, is I, I just had so much to learn. I had so much work to do with my own application. I wrote an, a lengthy addendum to my, 
to my application. And uh, it just made me realize, you know, without the right kind of guidance and without, you know, some, some, some really uh, focused mentorship is the right word for this, it's a long shot at best. I would say without some guidance from people who know what they're doing and who have done this before, it's almost impossible. So I would be interested in knowing what are some of the challenges that uh, that you see with people who come to you? How do you address those challenges and uh, enable these people to put themselves in the best position possible so that they can get what they're seeking? Okay, well... Um First of all, they don't always do what we recommend, okay, <laughs> which then is a problem, okay. But um, yeah, in fact, we uh, yeah, um, and that does present problems, okay. But but if, but if folks work with us, what we do is from the beginning we uh, first of all help them understand what what the process is and what these questions are. You have to answer, you have to submit a written application with twenty some questions, and and most of those questions are not particularly relevant, you know, things like where where you went to school and where you used to live and all that kind of stuff. But but there is about a half a dozen questions that get to the heart and soul of it. You know, what do you believe? How did your beliefs develop? How do your beliefs influence your life? You know, to what degree and under what circumstances do you believe in the use of force? You know, so these are all questions that they have to submit a written answer to. And what we do is, uh, you know, first of all, we tell folks, you know, you know, your story is yours. You know, you, you know, you know, what you believe, you know, what your experiences are that brought you to this point better than anybody. So nobody can write that for you. Um, but we can help you do the best job possible in laying out your story. And so, um, you know, we have them write a draft, and then we give them comments on it. They rewrite it, and we give them more comments. We go back and forth a, a number of times, usually. Um, you know, and 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 really, it's a matter of, uh, um, I mean, in some cases, folks write such brief answers the first time that they haven't even begun to scratch the surface on the question. So we have to sometimes talk with them at length to help them tell their story so we can help them better, you know, articulate what it is that they're, you know, believing and feeling. Um, sometimes we get the opposite extreme. People have some education, think they know everything in the world about whatever, and, you know, they're writing a letter, you know, they're, they're trying to convince the, the military that war is wrong. Well, that's not what it's about. You know, you know, what you're trying to do is show the military that you sincerely believe it's wrong for you to participate in war. And you also want to emphasize that it's causing distress within you internally. Mm-hmm. Yes. The whole point of it, as I understand it, and from what I remember, is not so much saying that war is wrong or trying to convince anyone in the military that war is wrong, as much as it is you're just saying that that my participation in this is causing me distress, and this is why I need to leave. Mm-hmm, yes. My, yeah, my conscience will not allow me to continue to do this. Yeah, mm-hmm. There's another distinction that I want to highlight here, is that a conscientious objector isn't necessarily a 100% pacifist. And I'm just saying this from personal experience. I mean, it's my podcast. Why not use me as an example? Uh, I'm very much pro-gun, and if someone is going to come into my house without, you know, without being welcomed and they're going to and their intent is to do me or my family harm, I'm going to use whatever force is, 
morally or legally authorized to do to prevent that from happening. But at the same time, I was a conscientious objector, and uh, it it's, may seem to some people that there is a disparity between that type of thinking. So how would you make that distinction between a conscientious objector, someone who is morally opposed to war, but isn't necessarily opposed to the use of violence when necessary? Okay, well, the way I explain it to folks is, is the, the, the law is that you must be opposed to your participation in war. The, that is the actual legal standard in the United States. I would say most of the folks I've encountered who say that they're conscientious objectors are also kind of against using, you know, certainly lethal force in pretty much any circumstance. I think most of them are, but not all of them. Okay, and and the standard is your opposition to war, your participation in war, not necessarily your opposition to using guns for hunting or whatever, or for self-defense if someone were to break into your house. You know that what what you would do if someone broke into your house. Um, is much different than what you do on the battlefield and more. And so, so for those folks, they, they need to explain what that difference is. Okay, so you don't necessarily have to be opposed to, you know, all force or lethal force to be a conscientious objector. But if you do accept, you know, and there are some folks, a number of them, who, who draw a distinction between what the military does and what the police force does. And they say that I, you know, I'm okay with the police force, but, but what we do as a part of the military is morally wrong. And they explain the difference about why one is okay and one is not. Well, we've already mentioned that there is regulations and rules regarding being discharged or being uh, classified as a conscientious objector. So can you describe what can someone expect if they're in the military? Should they choose this course of action? What steps can they expect? What, uh, you know, can you maybe outline the process a little bit for them? Well, sure. Well, once you submit your written application, of course, there's some various administrative things that happen. But, but the big things are, um, you know, you have a psychiatrist, you have an interview with a psychiatrist or a military, you know, medical officer uh, to, you know, to make sure you're, I guess they want to make sure it's not like PTSD or something like that that's really behind your application. Um, and then they have an interview with a with a military chaplain, even if you're not religious. Uh, you have to have a chaplain's interview. And the chaplain is looking at, um, you know, the, the basis of your claim, you know, the, your moral, spiritual grounding and, and, and that. Um and and they each write up a report, the, the psychiatrist and, and the chaplain. And then you've got something called an investigating officer hearing, which is, it's I mean, technically it's a non-adversarial hearing where basically the investigating officer asks a bunch of questions and the conscientious objector applicant, you know, does their best to answer these questions. And and yeah, there's all sorts of questions that that come up. Okay, some of them are not appropriate, by the way. I mean, uh, but but uh, but they, you know, I mean, they've they're generally ask if a good a good officer will basically ask you to explain your beliefs in your own words, so that they would get some sense of what it is that you believe. Uh, but then they will, you know, ask the hard questions. I mean, they will ask things about, well, what if somebody's attacking your mother or your wife? You know, then what would you do to defend them? 
you know, and um, uh, but they also ask things like, well, well, what about Hitler? And of course, anybody who's now dealing with this wasn't even alive back during the time of Hitler. You know, their their honest answer is they don't know because it was a whole different world back then, and they'd have been a whole different person. Okay, but 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 the question about Hitler, you know, still comes up. But more recently, you know, then the question was, well, what about 9/11, or what about Osama bin Laden? What do we do about that? And so they ask folks these questions to see how they answer it, and you know, and partly I think it's maybe to try to trick them into, you know, saying something that's a contradiction of something they said before, so they can say, oh, look, you see, you you, you contradicted yourself, or you know, but but it also I think it's uh, we tell folks that we're working with that. You know, if you say you're opposed to war, you really ought to think about these things. You know, what do you think about uh, these issues? Because, I mean, partly just so for your own peace of mind, for getting your own, you know, moral framework straight, but also because they might ask you these things as part of the application process. You know, I wanted to cover this topic on this podcast because, well, one, someone asked me about my experience being discharged from the military as a conscientious objector. So I thought if someone is asking me, maybe there's a couple of more out there who want to know about it. Uh, but a, a second reason is that maybe there's someone out there who is listening in and they're in the military and and maybe they're just in need of a little bit of guidance and uh, maybe this is what they need. Um, I want to give a couple of tips if that's you, if you're in the military and you're considering this course of action. One thing that I could have done a little bit better in hindsight, of course, hindsight is twenty twenty, and you know it's it's easy for me to say that I should have done this uh, five years after the fact. But what I would have done differently, I could have been a little bit more communicative with my chain of command. I could have been a little bit more. Uh, I should I could have shown a little bit more empathy towards my chain of command. Now you have to remember that uh, no one deals with this. Like 99.99% of the military will never deal with anything like this in their careers. And what I did is I just went to my commanding officer and I said, here's my packet, figure it out. Now that wasn't fair to him. And it wasn't fair to the people in my chain of command. And it, I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's easy for me to say this five years after the fact but I just say this as, you know, if you're considering this, just do your homework, lay out the steps for your chain of command, let them know that you're considering it, and then when you make the decision, then you let them know. This is, I'm going to do this. This is the process. This is what is going on, because the better prepared that they can be, then the better that they can help you get what they want. Because I, I have to believe that at the end of the day, a conscientious commanding officer wants what's best for their soldier, sailor, airman, whatever you want to call it. But having said all that, Bill, if someone wants to do this, what should they do? Well, they should get in touch with us. First of all, I want to say the Center on Conscience and War. Um, our number is 800-379-2679. Um, you know, we will be happy to help you through the process, but I guess, I mean, uh, yeah, you need to read the regs, you need to understand what the process is probably before you do anything. 
Um, it, it probably would not be a bad idea to talk with your chain of command to say that you're struggling with your conscience about some of these issues, maybe even talk with a chaplain about it. But, um, you know, but, but we recommend that you don't tell them you're working on a conscientious objector application until you've got it relatively um, ready because, uh, you know, because we actually had commands say, you know, well, we want to, I want it on my desk in 24 hours or 48 hours. I actually had one case where the officer put the guy in a room and said, okay, you can't leave until you've finished your application and, and, and submit it to me. Now, these things are not legitimate, okay? I mean, you really need to have some time to, you know, carefully think through your values and write up your application, and doing it under that kind of pressure is in itself, you know, prejudicial. But, you know, for folks that don't, don't know any better, you know, that they, they can get, you know, screwed by that. So, so we... Um, you know, we, we tell folks to, you know, to not talk about the actual submitting the application until till they got it relatively close to being done. So don't let your chain of command know until you're sold on the idea of doing it and you've contacted the Center on Conscience and War and you're more or less prepared to go, uh, to go forward with it, with the steps and the procedures in the regulations. But I would add to that, just remember that these people are human beings, and they have their own biases, just as you do. And um, just you know, show a little grace. And that 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 could be why that particular commanding officer uh, acted the way he did. He was angry. Maybe he felt a little bit you know disrespected by the person who was doing that. Show a little grace. Show a little love, and hopefully things will work out in the end. Yeah. Yeah. And it wouldn't hurt to talk about your values. I mean, it's, you know, you, you, the thing is, that, you know, you're on a military base. You know, you're not going to necessarily find a lot of folks who are sympathetic. And probably if you start talking about your beliefs a whole lot, you might even encounter a lot of hostility. But to at least say enough to let folks around know that you, you're struggling with some moral issues, you know, so that if the investigating officer or somebody does come and talk to other people in your unit, they'll be able to say, well, yeah, he did talk about this, you know. I mean, so often, I mean, we, you know, it's, I mean, it, it's kind of hard, you know. And so, I mean, not, necess not to necessarily have to talk about it a lot, but, but it would be good to have some folks you've talked this through with that know, you know, that you've been struggling with things so that they could then write a letter or even be called upon to testify. So if someone calls the Center for Conscience and War, uh, can they expect to pay any type of fee for your services? No, we are we're a nonprofit, non-government organization. Okay, we we don't charge for our services, and we do all we can to help folks who who call us. And the reason we, I mean, okay, just to understand, the Center on Conscience and War, we were created back in 1940. Uh, by churches who were concerned about how badly conscientious objectors had been treated during World War One, It is a piece of our history that is deplorable. Uh, everybody should know about it, but nobody does. So how were they treated? Um, horribly, okay. Um, we know of at least 30 conscientious objectors who died in military prisons, mostly from abuse of treatment that included torture. Conscientious objectors were waterboarded 100 years ago. Um, you know, there are reports of people having ropes tied around their neck and being dragged around. 
Um, I mean, there's, I mean, it just uh, the, the, the entire treatment was horrendous. And, and so as the country was, I mean, cause during world war one, uh, to qualify as a conscientious objector, first of all, you had to be a member of a church that prohibited its members from being a part of the military. Uh, and so most people didn't qualify cause they weren't a member of one of those churches. Okay. And then, um, but even if you were a member of one of those churches, you were in the military expected to do non-combat service, like what Desmond Doss did. You know, well, Desmond, and some can do that. Desmond Doss could do that. But there are lots of folks who said, no, I can't do that. That goes against my values. And for those folks who refused to do that, uh, they were court-martialed and, like I say, treated horribly. There were 20 people sentenced to death. Their crime being, I'm not going to kill people because of my values. Now, none of them were executed. All their sentences were later commuted, but, you know, but they spent years in jail. So, yeah, so as the country was gearing up for World War II, um, you know, some churches that were concerned about what happened, you know, got together and, first of all, did some lobbying to get better protection in the law for conscientious objectors. But then they also created us to be an advocate and support for conscientious objectors. So this is why we're here. And we want to do all we can to help conscientious objectors, and we do not charge people for our services. If folks want to make a contribution, that's great. That helps us be here for others, you know, but we don't charge for our services. Wow, that is unconscionable that that happened in right in here in the land of the free and the home of the brave. Um, boy, what can you say? Bill Galvin and the good people at the Center for Conscience and War, they are doing good work, so... Look them up, centeronconscience.org, centeronconscience.org. Bill, I went through the process myself years ago, but just talking with you this short time, I've learned a ton about the process. So, Bill, I just want to say thanks for all that you do, and thanks for sharing your time on my little show. Sure. Well, I'm glad glad to reconnect with you, and, and thank you. Listen to a brand new story every single day on your favorite podcast player. Go to checkoutmypodcast.com and subscribe to the show today. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you on the flip side.